So you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. When a competent observer looks for signs of despotism in a community, he looks beyond fine words and noble phrases. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. Go into the automobile business and compete with the auto truck. Can I go into the grocery business and compete with the chain stores? Not a chance. Monopoly is the menace of free enterprise. Because it's just a big money-making machine. They're wandering through a maze of inauthentic, fake landscapes, and they can't escape. The message in all this is that the capitalist system in America is unfair and is, in fact, a failure at providing for basic human needs or maintaining continued national growth. I, I can't wait for like the episode of like who wants to be a millionaire where all the contestants like team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. Bottom-up horizontal connection is sharing at all levels, not top-down control. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Because as communities go, so goes the nation. We didn't elect no king. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Wonderful job. Welcome, this is the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt, and with me is... I'm your wonderful co-host, Michael Walsh. Yes, rest in peace, Vermin Supreme. Vermin Sanders. Oh, Vermin Sanders, yes. Sorry, yeah, that's his actual... Yeah, my what, what alternative Facebook account for when I'm in the Facebook jail has been murdered by Mark Zuckerberg. R.I.P. in peace, Vermin Sanders. Sam Hammer! Zuckerberg! He will be avenged. Now, today, uh, we're going to cover law and order, police issues, and then kind of check in on defund the police as a cause and kind of do some deep analysis as far as, like, what does it really all mean? What is it all for? And we're not really concerning ourselves with uh, retaliating against, say, a, why use the motto defund the police? It's losing people. Like, well, we're fighting for something, yes, new and perhaps unpopular at first, like everything else that counts as progress gay marriage was once something that like was not something that was mildly acceptable and it's like oh let's just fight push for civil unions we can do that or to go back even further you'll find people like at uh, white people at protests holding signs that say race mixing is communism like we've always they still believe that by the way yeah we've always had that we've always tried to make the world better and there's always been people who have seen us trying to make the world better and say, I don't want the world to be better. The world is good as it is. The and, world and is not as there, it is. And it is the radical Marxists that are usually doing it. So the right does have a point in that the communists want X, you know, the free love bureaus and all that. So so let's just start with the kind of a cab uh, type of thing here. A video from a defense lawyer. Mm. This is a, from a YouTube channel the Regent University School of Law, in fact. So 
Uh, Regent Law Professor James Duane gives viewers startling reasons why they should always exercise their Fifth Amendment rights when questioned by government officials. Which police count as, but this goes for any government official, actually. So, but this is particularly in the law and order context. So why should never talk to the police? I'm just going to, this is a long video, it's 46 minutes, we're just going to play the first 10. I was invited to give you a taste of a typical law school classroom experience here today, and I thought I would take advantage of this opportunity to do something that's been on my mind for a while. To stand up and to proudly say, God bless America, God bless the Bill of Rights, and thank God for the Fifth Amendment. I'm not ashamed to say I'm proud of the Fifth Amendment, and I'm not, I'm proud to admit on camera and on the internet that I will never talk to any police officer under any circumstances, with all due respect, sir. <laughs> I'm doing something really extraordinary here today, something you'll almost never see another law professor do as long as you live. I'm really putting myself on the spot here. At my, this was my idea. By my invitation, I have given up half of my time, approximately. I'm giving equal time and the last word to an expert who really knows something about what I'll be talking about. So I'm opening myself up to the possibility that he will contradict me. I was a criminal defense attorney when I was in private practice. So I want to make sure, in fairness to you, if I'm misleading you or giving you a slanted or one-sided presentation, you'll be able to get the last word from somebody else. I'm sure he'll have a lot to teach all of us, including myself. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution provides, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. And this unfortunate amendment has gotten a bad rap in, in recent times. Much of it, uh, tragically and unnecessarily, through, as you may have heard, the headlines let me read you something that uh, was taken out of the newspaper this morning, and I want you to listen to it closely. And I'm giving you a heads up. I'm warning you in advance, which is not fair to you. Not fair to me, but I'm giving, you a head to, I'm giving you a warning that I'll be quizzing you on this in just a few minutes. This will test your aptitude for legal study and legal practice. Listen closely. It won't take long. Last night, agents of the Norfolk Police Department found three victims of an apparent murder dead in an apartment in the East Ocean View area, the apparent victims of a gangland-style slaying, and possibly the victims of gang-related violence. The police are investigating this as a possible murder and suicide, but right now suspect that the three were all killed by the same individual. No suspects have yet been identified in the slaying, but veteran police detective George Brook has confirmed that police are following up on evidence pointing to the possible involvement of an off-duty naval officer as the perpetrator. The bodies, which were found by the apartment manager at about 8 o'clock in the morning, appear to have been slain sometime earlier in the same evening, probably sometime between midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning. Those are all the facts I'll ask you to remember, and it won't be for very long either. Let's see how well you do. I'll be quizzing you in just a few minutes. Now, here's the easiest question you'll ever get from a client in all the days of your life. Question, hey, the police are here. They want to talk to me. What should I do? Well, I could give you my answer to that question in case you haven't already guessed it, but why don't we go to a real expert? Justice Robert Jackson, a prosecutor's prosecutor. Like me, he began his private practice in Buffalo, New York, years before I did. And after that, he served as general counsel for the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the U.S. Department of Treasury, the Security and Exchange Commission, assistant U.S. Attorney General for the Tax Division, later the Solicitor General and the Attorney General of the United States, and then the Chief U.S. Prosecutor for the Nuremberg Trials. That's an impressive resume. Years later, when he was a justice on the Supreme Court, Justice Jackson stated, quote, any lawyer worth his salt, today we would say his or her, will tell the suspect, his client, in no uncertain terms to make no statement to the police under any circumstances. There's the title of my talk. I'm here to explain to you the surprising and somewhat counterintuitive and admittedly unlikely reasons why Justice Jackson was right. I'm reminded of this because I'm amazed, we're all amazed, by the frequency with which we see newspaper articles coming out all the time from people who really ought to know better who say, well, I'll, I'll talk to the police. I mean, after all, I'm, I'm a senator. 
I'm a uh, I'm O.J. Simpson. I'm uh, I'm an experienced, highly polished individual. I've got a lot of experience with public relations, even criminal defense attorneys. There was a local news story here in the Virginia Pilot just a couple of months ago about an experienced criminal defense lawyer who ended up getting convicted of criminal assault because he talked to the police. He was accused of having assaulted another attorney in the hallway. There were no other witnesses to this. A woman said that he grabbed her by the throat during an argument over a case. He denied it. Uh, at trial, it was his word against hers. He said, I did not even touch her. But unfortunately for him, when the police had approached him earlier and said, would you be willing to answer some questions? He said, sure, why not? I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I'm savvy. I'm sophisticated. I've got oratorical prowess. I'm, I'm accustomed to dealing with the police by all means. And then there was a conversation that was not recorded. When the case went to trial, it was no longer his word against hers because when he testified at trial, I never touched her. The officer took her to the stand and testified, well, when I met with him, he said he did put his hand on her throat, but just as a joke. Then he had to take the stand again and say, that's not true. I never said that. I never admitted to you that I, now it's his word against two people. Who's telling the truth? We'll never know for sure. But he was found guilty. Now, here's part of the problem. The heart of the problem, as Justice Breyer on the U.S. Supreme Court explained in 1998, is, quote, the complexity of modern federal criminal law codified in several thousand sections of the United States Code and the virtually infinite variety of factual circumstances that might trigger an investigation into a possible violation of the law make it difficult for anyone to know in advance just when a particular set of statements might later appear to a prosecutor to be relevant to some investigation. Uh, one expert on criminal law recently noted that estimates of the current size of the body of federal criminal law vary, although it has been reported that the Congressional Research Service can no longer even count the current number of federal crimes. That's right. Even the federal government has lost count. These laws are scattered over all 50 pages of the U.S. Code, encompassing roughly 27,000 pages. Worse yet, these statutes often incorporate by reference to the provisions of administrative regulations. Estimates of how many such regulations exist are even less well settled, although the ABA thinks there may be nearly 10,000. Here's one of those 10,000 federal criminal statutes on the book that you probably never heard about. It's called the Lacey Act, 16 U.S.C. Section 3370, says it's a federal offense for any person to import, export, transport, sell, receive, acquire, or purchase any fish or wildlife or plant taken, possessed, transported, or sold in the violation of any law, treaty, or regulation of the United States or any Indian tribal law or any state or any foreign law. People have been convicted in federal court for violating this statute because they brought back a bony fish from Honduras, not knowing that Honduran law, not American, but Honduran law, forbade the possession of the bony fish. People have been convicted under this law because they were found in possession of a, what's called a short lobster, a lobster that's under a certain size. Some states forbid you from possessing a lobster if he's under a certain length. It doesn't matter if he's dead or alive. It doesn't matter if you killed it or if you died of natural causes. It doesn't even matter if you acted in self-defense. Did you know that? Did you know it could be a federal offense to be in possession of a lobster? Admit it. Raise your hand if you did not know that. There's the problem. And that's only one of 10,000 different ways. You know, the lobster government gets daddy. pretty upset when people like me instructs the client, people like me and Justice Jackson. Don't Jordan talk Peterson, to your Don't answer out. any questions. But, you know, they can't have it both ways. You people, you've got 10,000 different ways of convicting us. Good for you, but, you know... With the bitter comes to the sweet, with the good comes to the bad. That's 10,000 different ways my client might unknowingly implicate himself in some sort of a criminal transaction. One of the reasons I decided to give this talk, I recently received a phone call from a former student of mine, a regional law school graduate, who may be watching this online. We're putting it on the Internet. He's a, he very, he's a me, fast hey, talker. I've been approached sure. by the Internal like Revenue him. Service. They want to ask me a couple of questions. They ask if I'd be willing to. Uh, but they say that I'm not a suspect. And I know in my heart I don't think I've done anything wrong in violation of the Internal Revenue Service provisions. Lord have mercy. <laughs> There's no man on earth, there's no, there's no woman in this country who can honestly say with complete confidence, I know I have never violated any provision of the Internal Revenue Code. 
He said, but, but they, they say I'm not a suspect and I know I've done nothing wrong. It's okay if I talk to him. I said, no, no, you tell them you will not talk to them without immunity. I explained to him why that was true and they never, he never heard from them again. <laughs> okay, why you should never talk to the police. Let me just spell it out for you. Let me make it plain to all of you. These are the top 10 reasons. I, I don't want to actually really lie to you. I don't really have 10. I don't have time for 10, but I've got time for eight and that'll be close enough. Number one, and this really ought to be good enough, contrary to what you laymen instinctively and naturally suppose, it cannot help. There is no way it can help you. Plenty of folks think that it can, and they're always wrong. You cannot talk your way out of getting arrested. Officer Brook, you've interviewed thousands of criminal suspects. Have you ever, how many times in your experience, have you approached someone, asked if you could ask him some questions because prior to the interview you had some evidence pointing to his possible guilt? And because of the extraordinary persuasiveness and eloquence with which he articulated his innocence, you said, oh, sorry, never mind. Bank call, my bad, I won't, and you, he talked you out of arresting him. Never, never, it never happens. I've often asked other criminal defense attorneys, in all of your experience, have you ever once had a case where you looked back in hindsight and said, thank God my client talked to the police, they laugh at me, they laugh at me, they say, you've got to be kidding me. You cannot help you. You can't talk your way out of getting arrested. And contrary to what you might suppose if you never studied the rules of evidence, what you tell the police, even if it's exculpatory, cannot be used to help you at trial because it's what we call hearsay. Under the rules of evidence, specifically rule 801D2A, if you want to look it up, uh, everything you tell the police, as the saying goes, can and will be used against you, but it cannot be used for you. From time to time... Right, I'll, I'll stop it there. And it's actually, um, the video is that, uh, say, almost an hour long. His, All right, send it speaking, to me. He's speaking for half of it. All media will be uh, in the show notes, or All the right. link sources that are put in the podcast um, okay. posting. Okay, all right, all right. But anyway, but yeah, no, I can send it to you directly. Um, I thought I did send it to you. You probably did. I'll, I'll find out. I, that's a, I, I want to watch that on my own time now. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he talks for 25 minutes. Um, cool. so yeah, so that's. I might listen to that on my drive home today. Yeah. Actually, no, I've been listening to a piece on primitivism. Uh, and, oh, yeah. Nice. On uh, my drive. Here, so, so um, just to summarize the rest, though, he, you know, his, as he goes through his rules, they get more and more concise as far as, like, even when you're giving the police your airtight alibi, that can still be spun or used to express that you were lying to the cops or you were mistaken. Because if a cop, say, interviews someone else who then puts you near the scene and you tell the cop you're somewhere else, the cop interprets that and will that you are lying to them and thus yes. now you're the suspect even if someone else was lying to the cop but because the cop heard it the cop is now a witness to you being put near the scene that was like number two or something but anyway onward so so that was just the whole like um there's really like our law, this, that, that's just scratching the surface of our kind of law and justice or injustice system that is designed to get convictions and punish. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of other value systems wrapped up in our punishment based justice system or law system and the system of laws itself, which will tie, will, will basically, this is one video. We will bookmark the show with another video that calls everything into question. But right now, let's just call in a question. Um, that police are out to sh uh, prove who is guilty and who is not. It is just a matter of, you know, if of just getting convictions and, you know, and sort of arbitrary enforcement because there are 10,000 laws on the books. Every one of us is probably breaking three, uh, rather committing three felonies all the time. Yeah. 
Now, from that side of things, which is more formal and it could really happen to anybody in any circumstance, although there are many people who feel insulated from this stuff, and maybe if you're rich enough, you can have your own defense attorneys. They'll tell you not to talk to the police or you know not to do that because you're privileged enough to know. Or there, there are videos where it appears that somebody is talking their way out of being arrested, but they're usually at a, it's a traffic stop and they're not talking their way. They're simply doing what the lawyer suggests, not cooperating at all. Right. Not giving up their ID, not giving any information. Am I under, under detainment? I'm not. Then am I free to go? You know, those are the questions you, you ask questions to the cop, not the other way around to the police officer. So now uh, let's, let's turn to more of the direct action um, how the rest of the hour will be more about how the law enforcement undermines social movements, right? That they are not partners, they are opponents. And that the state does not want to cooperate, listen to, or have any democratic process with social movements. It really does put everything, uh, a lot of resources towards undermining them, attacking them, preventing free assembly and free speech, not just under the they these uh well, let's say it's the justified under the rubric that they're tamping down on extremism and that will come into play later especially with BLM but in the real world there is actually war crimes afoot this is from popular mechanics you wouldn't expect popular mechanics to cover something that would be politically yeah. uh, with political import but they are covering the technical aspects of uh, certain, uh, what they would call protest deterrence technology. How to dodge the sonic weapon used by police. The LRAD is like a car alarm from hell, and if you aren't careful, it could permanently damage your hearing. What? So this is filed by Lynn uh, Pescalang in the summer of this year. Audio producer Corey Choi was reporting on the 2014 Black Lives Matter protests in New York City when he first experienced sound as a weapon. Horrible, nauseating pain hit my body, he tells Popular Mechanics. And then I realized it was sound. At first you just think, what's happening to me? Your body goes into complete pain and panic mode. It's the sound equivalent of looking into the sun. Despite his professional-grade headphones, the effect of the weapon, a long-range acoustic device, or LRAD, was so disorienting at first that Choi couldn't tell which way to run and was forced to randomly pick a direction. But he was lucky. People in the direct line of fire of it didn't run, he said. They just dropped to the ground and started screaming. Confronted with an unprecedented global movement against police violence and racial injustice, U.S. law enforcement officers have once again resorted to sonic warfare. What appears to be a projector, a box amplifier, or a loudspeaker mounted on a police car or strapped to an officer's chest is a relatively modern military-grade deterrent that creates powerful sound waves to disorient and injure humans in its narrow target beam. These devices vary in appearance and size, but every model has the same two capabilities. In one mode, it acts as an amplifier, projecting a human voice or recording across thousands of meters. In the other, it emits a deterrent tone so loud it can cause permanent hearing loss. Now, an aside, um, two things come to mind when I read this. One that there's usually the kind of sonic screech that can be heard in some protest videos. Yeah. This is probably not the LRAD, but it's just some kind of, it's, a, it's or it is the sound cannon, but like the camera's picking it up from outside of the cone where it just hear, sounds like a kind of dog whistle of sorts, where it's not like a literal one where it's just like, ee, ee, you know, hmm. 
The other thing that comes to mind is that the military hasn't have in fact created a laser, not a laser gun, but a heat ray in which uh, microwaves are shot out in a focus beam, and it basically raises the temperature of your epidermis to boiling levels. Hmm. So it feels like you're being scalding water is being thrown on you. Okay. And it's only on your ex- exodermal layer. So your you know, brain and, and fight or flight is to jump out, of, you know, jump away. Right. Which basically is say you're holding a gun or a knife or charging a police officer would be really useful because you basically turn it on for a second on someone. They're like, ah, and and then like, you know, and then they're disarmed, so to speak. Huh. But you could keep focusing on people. And they actually like I watched a video where it could be blocked by holding a mattress up in front of you. Oh. But of course, then they were holding it on the sides with their hands and then the hands were getting singed by it. Wait, what? Is it? It was a military test video where they were showing, like, the protest, you know, Iraqi protesters or something, and, and how this this large machine put on top of the Humvee was able to just scatter them. What What's the, what's it, what is it shooting out? Uh, microwaves. Oh. But anyway, oh. that hasn't been put on the streets, but instead the sound cannon has, or okay. at least uh, that's what's been used. So early stages of sonic warfare. The first LRADs were developed as military weapons in response to the bombing of the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen in 2000. Military officials asked the LRAD Corporation, now Genesis, <laughs> that's G-E-N-A-S-Y-S, hmm. for a de- to a device it with two functions, to communicate at a distance and to disperse them with an unbearable alarm-like sound. Hmm. These military-grade weapons soon found their way ashore and on- into the hands of police. Protesters have reported LRAD attacks by police at the No Dapple protests at Standing Rock during the 2017 Women's March in Washington, D.C. I'm surprised it was used then. And in a dozen other cities and demonstrations around the world. Although over the past few decades, as worldwide protests have erupted in response to the May 25th murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, Derek Chauvin, reports of police using LRADs against civilians have again poured into social media feeds. With the new renewed use of LRADs comes a renewed concern for their danger. Humans are regularly exposed to noise that can cause damage over time, but LRADs can cause lasting hearing damage in a matter of seconds, says Mar- uh, Marissa Ewing Moody, black audio engineer, who has been educating the public about the danger of them. As a black audio engineer, I thought I could take a second to talk about long-range acoustic devices. That's what LRAD stands for, which are effectively sound cannons. They have been used to disperse crowds in the past, and so I want to talk about them now as they can permanently damage your hearing. This is uh, from a tweet, I guess. Hmm. Sassy Composer is her handle. Interesting. Uh, now for some a little science. Any sound above 85 decibels can cause permanent damage to your hearing depending on how long you're exposed to them. Normal conversations are 60 to 70. Concerts and sporting events can be about 94 to 110 and a jet taking off is between 120 and 140. She says, in contrast, some LRADs can create sounds up to 160 decibels when used at full power. Now, this is uh, something to point out, is that decibel measuring is exponential. Right. So um, 70 decibels is twice as loud as 50 or 60. Right. And decibels go up like say uh, we were using a, a to test our knowledge of decibels and cal- sound calculations in architecture school uh, the major kind of multiple choice question is we're given the decibel level of a saxophone a trumpet a drum kit a number of instruments and basically 
um, there's an equation you use that for each instrument added, the number of decibels goes up slightly, like from 70 to 72 to 74. Even if all the instruments are, say, playing at the same level. Car alarm from hell. The purpose of LRAD systems, according to the Genesis website, is to provide, quoting them, unparalleled long-range communication and safe, scalable, non-kinetic escalation of force. But sound technicians and human rights defenders around the world have disputed this framing, comparing sonic weapons to other controversial dispersal tactics like tear gas, chemical weapons, and rubber bullets. Robert Allop, an audio engineer and former chair of the New York chapter of the Audio Engineer Society, is one of the many in his trade who sees LRAD deployment as a military-style escalation of force. I would characterize it as a terror weapon. Up there were tear gas and flashbang grenades. The latter are supposed to be non-lethal, but they can hurt you. Same as same for the LRAD. Right. The principle behind using this as crowd control rather than for long-distance communication is similar to the idea behind a whistle or a siren. They all emit tones in the most sensitive range of frequencies for most humans. The same goes for actually most truck beeping. You know, it's meant to get hmm. your attention, but it's really just harming our hearing. And mm-hmm. we just tune it out, or if anything, you have... In order in construction sites, they put on headphones so they don't hear the beeping, right. and then it completely negates the purpose. <laughs> Mythbusters are not Mythbusters, but the spinoff show did a test of how low-range beeping, uh, low-frequency beeping, is actually way more effective. We can actually sense where the sound is coming from, through huh. like around us, as opposed to the high-range beeping, which we just hear. We actually don't know what direction it's coming from, and we have to look around. Anyway. Hmm. And uh, while whistles emit sound waves in all directions, LRADs concentrate the waves in a narrow cone of sound extending about 15 degrees in every direction from the axis. Like a flashlight, this directional sound wave packs a typical diffuse, typically diffuse kinetic energy into a tight space, bombarding those in its vicinity with a powerful tone that's an annoyance at a distance and a serious medical threat up, cl- up close. Kind of called a cone of pain. So the advice is protect your ears and get out of the way. As reports of LRAD used on civilians roll in, sound specialists and DIYers have scrambled unsuccessfully to find some way to mitigate the weapon's effects. Cheap foam earplugs provide some protection, up to 30 decibels, or covering your hands with your ears reduces noise by around 20. But the best protection is to get out of the direction of the beam. Remember that the LRAD beams sound in a narrow pattern, so move off to one side and get out of the main pattern. A widely circulated 2017 digital zine on sonic care for protesters, audio engineer yeah, Daphne Carr laid out practical insights for responding to Nelrads while on the streets. Quoting her, If it is used as a communications device, put in earplugs and check out the scene for routes of escape from possible injurious exposure. Carr suggested treating Nelrads as a warning from police that they're about to escalate violence. Even if it starts out as a public service announcement, LRADs are frequently used in conjunction with other suppression tactics like targeted arrests and pepper spray. One form of escalation should alert protesters to defend against additional forms. In general, Carr wrote, police departments are supposed to issue warnings prior to escalations and arrests. This often happens through the LRAD. If you hear a warning from the police, it is likely that this signals that they are planning escalated next steps, be it seizure or use of deterrence tone. I want to point out, I was watching a little clip of a video taken by an assembly member here in New York 
newly elected, he was part of the Poor People's Campaign, so he's an activist, or at least a poor person's organizer. And he was uh, just observing the blockade of, uh, or the um, protest stopping, or at least attempting to stop an eviction of a teacher and her family who were being evicted, you know, this week. And he was observing with his phone, he was on the side, but the police arrested him first, because he wasn't a part of the protest, meaning you're not protected by the bulk, you're separate. So there's that kind of advice, stay with your group, whatever, when you ever do an action. And two, to point out that this was an assembly person, and he could say that, and it didn't matter at all. And he was just filming, he was on the side, and he was being arrested. Is this thing legal? Hmm. Does it matter? Can, tw- I, can I do a quick interjection? Go ahead. I just uh, found a post that I really liked. Yeah, I saw you snicker. It's by um, a right libertarian, and they're like, we'll let you abolish ICE if you let us abolish the ATF. And then a bunch of left libertarians go, you know what? I see this as an absolute win. I think they're assuming that we like the ATF or something. Uh, they think we like the government. Yes, yeah, 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 right, right. Um, we, 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 we don't like any of that no. law enforcement, actually. We don't like any of it. Because the law enforcement is, is just an anti-drug enforcement. Exactly. Know, so. All right, keep going now. <laughs> and we're anti-gun, apparently, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, more and more and more are changing their minds on that. Uh, in 2017, a group of New Yorkers sued the NYPD for damages resulting from sonic attacks during their protests that followed the non-indictment of Daniel Palento, one of the officers who murdered Eric Gardner in 2014. The department argued loud sounds can't constitute a use of force, which the judge rejected, allowing the case to proceed. An earlier suit in Pittsburgh awarded 72 grand to a bystander who suffered permanent hearing loss from an LRAD attack no nine. This is why LRAT should be banned against civilians, especially those exercising their rights to peacefully protest. Well, what if, what if it's a riot? What if they what if the what if they say it's a riot? That's the thing. A crowd. Here's the craw of it that I want to tack onto this because the article's pretty much over. That, like, if you're pro you're protesting, and if you don't get the permit, if you're not legally right. protesting, you can protest illegal, you know, illegally. Right? right, and it's been ruled. Apparently, I, I don't know how many lawsuits there have been, or, or has this been taken to the Supreme Court, that the permit is apparently required for your protest to be legal. Right, and then if you do it, you're not extra legal. You're actually breaking the law, or the police say this is an illegal protest, and we can now declare it a riot, even if no property damage or agitation is happening. Right. If you're blocking the road, you're all technically jaywalking. You're all criminals. Oh. We are, we can mass arrest in Kettling now, even if it's just a catch and release, but that's what seizure refers to, or we use deterrence, even if uh, it's in a residential neighborhood, which occurred here in Albany, because the tear gas goes everywhere. Now, it's, it's one thing if it's in a commercial neighborhood, which is you know downtowns, and that's where you usually see this kind of riot point, right. but in this case, we were uh, outside the police station in the hood. And they were shooting tear gas at us in the hood. Oh, wow. And it was going into people's homes who are not on the streets. Yeah, that's that's not good. And apparently this was not a big scandal. But pretty much, I'm sure the police stepped back and said, we're not going to use tear gas again. But I didn't see an announcement. Maybe I missed it. But it wasn't a big deal, apparently. Not a big enough deal. Because, hey, we were just ruffians or someone shot a firework. And, right. And that was enough. Okay. 
Next, there are Media for Justice. This will probably take the rest of the time. So Media for Justice, which I assume it refers to South Africa. So this is a South African publication. All right. So I want to put this in the context because it doesn't really say so much. So if you read Slingshot, which is like an anarchist newspaper that's been in circulation for quite a while, every other issue, there'll probably be some story of how some commune, collective, or anarchist cell, um, or rather affinity group, got infiltrated because they might be doing nefarious things or, or doing extra legal activities. So they're a threat or when we're actually organizing outside the system and we're not following their rules and their process of do things the right way, formally, you know, be a party, run in elections, right. Follow Bernie Sanders, you know, or, you know, lean on AOC to do something in Congress. Now, uh, maybe we could, do an aside here and have you been following the thing with jimmy Dore and how he's attacking the bit. left now i i have, a, I, have a, I have my own take i would probably should share that it was it was a long while ago pretty much after the fifth time i contacted my representative paul tonko and got some mindless form letter in response right and it wasn't just me personally contacting him it was also after formally lobbying state government which is smaller than congress right there's more democrats it's more even right and now even now there's democratic leadership you lobby them not just myself mind you i did it as part of a coalition of nonprofit and good government groups hmm. for campaign finance reform or medicare for all or single payer in new york and it was absolutely meaningless at the end of the day yeah. we could convert democrats we could get all these co-sponsors and at the end of the day it didn't matter. Leadership hold the cards, and they weren't going to do it. Right. Right? And it didn't matter how many progressives or social democrats or democratic socialists were elected. It The situation has not changed in New York. We haven't legalized weed. We haven't, you know, we still have Como doing his emergency Palpatine-like um, <laughs> shtick. And, uh, and then, yeah. I am the Senate. And, and yeah, and then we play the bumper with him just saying, like, you know, stop the spread, stop the spread. We'll get the vaccines out. And we're managing things technocratically and we're doing a good job. And I'm going to write a book and I'm going to try to run for president. <laughs> but it'll, it'll end up, uh, Chapo pointed out, it'll probably end up like Giuliani. He's, he's very much like Giuliani. And as far as personality, he is like very much like Trump. Hmm. Um, same with his father. But anyway. But it's just like the, the liberal media will spin everything he does as some progressive hero. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not that hard. Um, you could do the same thing with Trump. It was done like when he was running, you know, that like, oh, look at, he's actually against the TTP. This makes him actually more left wing than the Hillary. Easy to spin, <laughs> easy to spin. But back to the story, not a story, but it's more of a, um, you'd have all these cells and anarchist groups particularly just radical organizing, and it doesn't have to be anarchist, of course. Right. It could be any social movement. Police are infiltrating. This is a big problem of Occupy. We had agitators. You know, it was hard to know who was doing it, but there was, uh, you know, certain books where it's like, oh, in, after the fact, we know this person was like some... And it doesn't have to be so, an actual cop. It could be someone paid by security forces. Right. Anyway... Story is called How to Spot an Infiltrator in Your Movement. Now, I thought this was kind of more of like a list of 10 tips, like the lawyer. It actually isn't. It's more of a listing of all the steps required to, um, the, of, of a particular infiltrator who was outed or found to be an infiltrator 
And these are all the steps they took to undermine the movement or the organization. So this is by staff writer, anonymously. There have been a lot of talk about agent provocateurs and infiltrators into movements such as Fees Must Fall and other leftist groups. This is in South Africa. This should not surprise us. It is clear that no movement would be devoid of plentiful infiltrators in this day and age and that some of them could be conspicuous on the picket line and found in organizational capacities within the struggle. Throughout history, modern history, radical movements such as the Black Panthers, anti-apartheid, and Occupy have been played by, and now include BLM and, and stuff in that list, please. They have been played with these things, uh, agent provocateurs. But nowadays, when the matter of infiltrators or moles is suggested in the South African context, there is a tendency to push it aside as exaggeration or paranoia, and thus agents are given the space to carry on with their business without scrutiny. However, the global problem of state-funded agents is as ripe now as it ever was, perhaps even more so as neoliberal governments are intent on smashing any uprising individual or organization that threatens their share-based partnership with monopoly capital. Based on observations and research, we have put together a lengthy composite of what traits and methods a modern-day infiltrator would manifest. Of course, some of these traits may be those of an overly enthusiastic member, but a combination of these traits shouldn't be ignored. This guideline list does not is not intended to create paranoia or so divisions among activists, though it's difficult to not see how it could do that, uh, but to create an awareness around behavioral traits of people who are there to report back to businesses or government on the plans and activities of your movement or organization. I think I'll read, because it's a long, it's not really a list as much as these are all steps. A bogus activist or agent appears out of nowhere, becomes the best friend very quickly, ensconcing themselves into the targeted movement seamlessly. They are quick learners and start to speak the language of the movement in a short space of time. Their hairstyle and clothing quickly changes to adapt to ongoing trends. Not long after they arrive on the scene, something calamitous happens, which injures the solidarity between members evocably. This bogus activist is usually at the center of organizing actions around the, thus, this calamity. It is through this time this person's role is created and endorsed in the movement. They have come with a mandate, so they gravitate to and befriend people whom they can use to fulfill this mandate. They look for the most vulnerable in this group and reach out to them, helping them and their material needs, such as shelter, food, a shoulder cry on, and lifts to direct action. Now, the really insidious thing about law enforcement infiltration in movement organization is that it can be real deep cover. Like that, that's how actual ep- espionage really works. It's the person who actually doesn't stand out. That's what real spy work is really about. Right. And the thing about not standing out is you really blend in. And there have been these stories where it turned out someone was on the payroll and they married somebody in the organization. Like I knew this person for 10 years. I was a lover. They were, we were lovers and they turned out they were, they were a federal agent. And it was a joke, like, with the Chicago 7 movie that, like, you know, half of our movement were police infiltrators. Mm-hmm. Based on, like, how, how many people, like, how many testimonies were given by cops who were, you know, undercover. And, and it just, just, just shows just what you're up against when it comes to, like, when the state really doesn't like what you're doing. Oh, yeah. And it's also, but it's also key to know, like, you're actually being countercultural. You're actually being rebellious. Yeah. You're actually perhaps making a difference or a threat to the status quo in a way that so-called progressives will never be. 
true. Um, and that's kind of where it's just like, no matter how much Jimmy Dore rants and raves, it's just sad because he wants a third party that really can't exist because he doesn't want it to be a left-wing one. He doesn't want to consider himself a left-wing one, just populist. Um, but he oh, wants the pressure. On. But, it, but I don't know. But he, he, I don't know. He seems to be probably left now, apparently. But it's, he's more left than AOC. He's attacking AOC and the squad for not basically agitating in Congress. You know, they agitate outwardly on Twitter. Right. But when it comes to actual governing capacity, they don't actually agitate. They go along to get along. Or do what Bernie does, which is amendments, amendments, amendments. And that's right. how the, we make a difference. Sure, they're making a difference. But are we shifting the status quo? Right. No. It's really just a matter of what your goals are. And our goals are always a bit, we're farther yeah. than what people who maybe have a stable income can comprehend. Uh, because I will never have a stable income. And, and many, many, many of my friends and other people around me don't. We just don't. So let's continue. Do you use flattery, boasting, uh, boosting certain people's self-image by casting them as the potential leader and speaking of their leadership qualities? The more useful a person can be to them, the more flattery they apply. Simultaneously, they encourage their friends to do outrageous things to prove these attributes. They set them up against other comrades, sometimes referring to them, to, referring to others as agents. The more people they can pit against each other, the better their intervention. So here's the thing where it's like the person who wants to root out infiltrators, they could be the infiltrator. And it's just right. kind of goes around and around and around. And it's really hard to like apply this article. So I'm not reading this as like this is the actual guide. It's more it's like this is what not even insurrectionary groups, but even just potentially radical groups are right. dealing with. Where if it, if it sounds like they're imploding or they're having social dynamic problems and they're not like being a nice click, it's like, was it a police infiltrator? Because you have people who show up and then they disappear. And that's where it's just really suspicious. Right. Or maybe, you know, they don't have to disappear, but they, once their work is done, you know, they're, they're gone and they stop coming to meetings. Right. You know, which, which is hard to believe because you want to take people at face value. Right. And it's hard to do that when you actually have this kind of, and this is where like we can't trust each other. So we can organize. And this is the thing that's kind of been hampering the left. It's not that we interfight all the time. I mean, that's true. Right. But those fires in the room, like when you walk in with the pizza boxes yeah. and everything's on fire, some of those are lit by agitators. Yeah. And that, that's what's this describing. Cause there were real stories of like, Oh, all of our dysfunction was actually the source of this person who is on the payroll. But so, so, so then there's a culture that's bred that I followed where you take your time. You don't trust people very quickly. You kind of want them to see if they stick around a number of meetings. Right. Um, let's say, you know, and I can apply this even to your, our relationship. And it was, it wasn't until maybe the third time you came to our zoom meeting or right. the green party meeting, or it's like, Oh, maybe this is a potential partner. Maybe I should ask them to join me. Well, actually, no, no, you were putting yourself out there too. As, yeah. a me as a meme lord. And I was, I looked at your memes first or I, I saw what you were doing and the collaboration and there was nothing suspicious. There was nothing that was like, you were not sowing any discontent or, or anything like right. that. Right. So it's, you kind of have to wait 
a bit of time to see if they do any of these things. So if anything, maybe this list actually is useful in that way. But it creates a culture of patience then yeah. of we need to test people's quote unquote loyalty or just help mm. just their regular behavior of do they like the whole thing of like, do they pick people out and say, Oh, they should be the leader. It's like, yeah, but you just showed up. Right. right? Or like, what do you know of their, you know, skills? It's like, you know, why are you butting up to people so quickly? Why are you being so clingy? Or it's like overly nice, you know, it's like, right. Tone it down, you know, kind of like everybody has to kind of be a little more Zen, I guess. They encourage their proteges. So they like, they, they groom people to be proteges and thus like online culture. There's all this uh, paranoia of grooming, mm. you know, Vosh grooming, shoe on head and whatever, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. They encourage the proteges to use their social media platforms to launch vitriolic attacks on people who need to be silenced or destroyed by government. They encourage their unsuspecting foot soldiers to work in packs. This means attacking an individual target as a pack, preferably on a public platform. They themselves make suggestive comments, contradict themselves, and spin outright lives on public platforms so casually that many do not notice. It takes a certain skill to spread rumors as truce. A lot of these things can also just describe what is usually called can- cancel-, cancel culture. Yeah. So it's like, is cancel culture just one big psyop by the government? Could be. No, I need, need some evidence. What are you raising uh, that for? I don't know. I, you just like it. I just fiddle with things. I need to have something in my hands. It's long. I and like it, though. smooth. <laughs> it also does the bendy. <laughs> yes. No, stimulation is, is good. You know, st- we call it stimming. That's why you there's guys the stim boxes. S- there's all these items that you buy if you want to stim in something in your hand. You guys can't see. I've got a, a long, uh, light stick that is bend. I think it's like. No, no, a- no. It would hold the, um, the, 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 oh, the pop filter. For me, it, it looks like a long reading light. Sure. They're able to so. creep into the, right into the inner workings of the movement and lay claim to all sorts of internal good work. They lay claim to it. Are they actually doing it? The mandate is to destabilize the struggle org and create mistrust among members. They're home in, hone in on the topics that are legitimate concern to people in the struggle. So it's like, it looks exactly like what a good member would be doing then. They pinpoint the most contentious issue and work with that, often building exaggerated constructs around the problem to create massive cleavages in the struggle. So for example, uh, instead of say it's a housing group, instead of working on housing and blocking evictions, they say, um, we have a trans problem or something. Or like we have an issue where we should only focus on the trans, our trans friends who need housing. We should just focus on that. And if you don't, you're transphobic. And then it becomes the whole oppression Olympics kind of fight. Not to use that kind of, that's, the reactionaries have been using that term way too much. They use every single available opportunity to push their, there's better ways to talk about this is what I mean. They use every single available opportunity to push their unwavering and monolithic framework, no matter what the occasion or the agenda. So basically, beware of the dogmatic. They're just not good faith actors. But it's hard to know, like, are they being dogmatic and could they be turned away? And it's like, if you try to work with someone and they just will not change or but it must, it could be that they're motivated not by their own ideology and whatever dogmatism they have, but actually they're paid to be that dogmatic similar to your uh, cable news hosts, you know. They're paid well to be propagandists. This is called the weaponization of legitimate narratives. This is called the weaponization of legitimate narratives for ulterior motives. 
and agents receive training in the field because it is so effective in breaking up unity and movements. This is an injustice to those who develop sound theory, which is then warped for maximum negative impact and sold to young minds as truth. So it's almost like you see this online all the time, where people are kind of twisting theory and saying, well, I haven't read the theory, but I know better. And this is what some YouTubers, not all of them, of course, but some do. So it's like, are they being paid? They seem really sincere at times, but then they feel like, and then they're just edgelords all the rest of the time. And that's what I mean by dogmatic. Sowing divisions and making, you know, because that's the thing, like, I'm not saying I believe or even consider that Vosh is some agent provocateur, but just, right. just as far as just the effect that he has is hard to distinguish from what an agent would do. Huh. So it's, it's, it, you know, it's not, I'm not, can't level a finger without evidence or something like that, but I'm just saying like, in the name of attracting more right-wing teenagers and other edgy teenagers to the left, he acts like a liberal, and then he argues with other leftists on things that seem to have legitimate arguments, but then it's just like, you look at the effect. Right. Where you're getting banned out of other leftist groups because of a disagreement about Bosch, or rather or, or of someone being a hardliner on him, and you're not. Right. And that has long, like, this has wider effects because social media has allowed it. It's like before in the 70s, it was only with a group of 10 or 20 at a time. Now, now it can, you can disrupt thousands of people from organizing. Yeah. An infiltrator is often at the center of, oh, okay, then if there's any accusations, usually at another person. So this is where then there's, um, and this is what the slingshot articles are usually kind of hammering at, which is, there's a accusation of sexual assault or abuse or harassment. And then it's like, is this an agent trying to disrupt things by making an accusation and throwing everybody into a whose side are you on kind of thing? But this is right. usually because these groups do not have a mechanism to determine the truth or seek restorative justice. If they did, these accusations would not be as harmful. Right. So that's kind of where look, there are solutions to this. It just actually refer, means that we do, actually do have to have solidarity, but we do need to be cautious depending on what kind of organizing you're doing. But even liberal organizers could be infiltrated, and then you have like someone who's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't fight for this. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, um, fight Pelosi. You know, we don't want to stop. You know, and they make bad arguments. Right. But it's like, is someone just making a bad argument, or are they an agent? It's right. like, whoa. You know, black pill yourself already or something, but yeah. not doing that. So, but it, it's just something to put out there. Okay. Uh, so that's the first half of the show. The second half will be, we're going to ratchet up the intensity actually, but more in the, in the positive direction of like, what, what's going on with, uh, defund the police and BLM and all that. Hmm. So, uh, let's see how much we can accomplish. And, um, um, so this is a three left show. Uh, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and we have the email three lefts show at Gmail. Yeah. So otherwise, um, stay rad and, and get back us to uh, for the second half. We've all seen the movies about gangsters and thugs About cunning mob bosses and the lords of the drugs But listen now closely if you've got the time Cause I like to tell you about organized crime 
Well, the old mafiosos and cinema crooks They may sport the pinstripes and sinister looks But you'll have to look elsewhere if you like to find The real perpetrators of organized crime so raise up your hand now if you've got a job Making shit wages working until your head throbs They're making a profit from robbing you blind They say it's just business, it's organized crime And the more the rich got, then the more the rich get While everyone else lives on toil and sweat the boss makes ten dollars, you just make a dime It's not fair compensation, it's organized crime And the tide of prosperity lifts every boat They say as you fall down and drown in their moat It's a game of roulette that you'll lose every time this economy's nothing but organized crime And if it weren't cruel enough, then the government comes Giving handouts to rich folk and taxing our crumbs We pay them to shaft us, then give us the line Oh, it's all in our interest, this organized crime Tell me who are the crooks and who's just getting by Who's doing honest work, who's working lies The real crooks go free while the poor folk do time If you're not angry, it should be, it's organized crime Just call up the police Cause the criminals got all the cops on a leash They'll have to take things in our own hands this time If we're gonna shut down their organized crime So come on now friends, are you ready to fight? They've stolen our power like it was their right Let's take it all back from these blood-sucking slime The real perpetrators of organized crime Now talk to your neighbors and talk to your friends Turn off the TV and start organizing We won't let them get off so scot-free this time When we topple their empire of organized crime we won't let them get off so scot-free this time When we topple their empire of organized crime Topple their empire of organized crime Welcome back to The Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. With me is Michael Walsh. Hello. So we were talking about law and order and particularly uh, circling back to defund the police and BLM and uh, and the, uh, an update on Minneapolis to focus there. 
But first, so first we start with kind of talking about BLM overall, its state of radicalization, first from Teen Vogue, and so it's so it's a bit shorter and piffier. Oh, um, I love how radical Teen Vogue has gotten. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's a good starting point for like basic information, not too heavy on theory and whatever, but a good one hundred and one. Yeah, and just so. And it's just the question of the Black Lives Matter revolution can't be co-opted by police and lawmakers. Now, of course, this is saying like a statement like it's it can't be like it's not going to happen or right. it can't happen because it would be really bad if it did. Right. Black Canary is an op-ed column sounding the alarm against enduring injustice in America. So this is written by a Candace Millette. This is published in July. So, yeah, a lot has happened since then, but also not a lot has happened. The social unrest we're seeing in America is unlike any that young people have seen in our lifetime. This is Team Vogue, after all. These mass actions that spread from Minneapolis to every state in the country and across the world. The huge numbers of people flooding the streets in a mass show of rage feel like a fundamental shift. While George Floyd's killing might have been the spark, the flame that keeps the movement ignited, is the antipathy that we all feel towards not only the police, but the whole system that police were designed to protect. Black people have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, economic recession, police killings and harassment, and incarceration. If anything, these riots are past due. The past three months have revealed for many that the priorities of the U.S. government are protecting capital and private property. This has been displayed during the coronavirus pandemic through neglect of essential workers and the speed with both Democratic and Republican governors rush to reopen the economy. It's even more obvious now through a show of military force against peaceful protesters. It may be too soon to call this a revolution, but it has the makings to be one. That's exactly why those in power, including the police, are shook. They are working tirelessly to destroy the wave of unrest before it becomes a tsunami they cannot control. Now, since the election, is this, you know, did the tsunami break? Know how to read the room. George Floyd's killing by police came just a week after the video by Ahmed Arbery was leaked, the same week that Amy Cooper went viral for weaponizing whiteness. The outcry was immediate and loud. Protests began in Minneapolis and spread to cities like L.A. and Atlanta. In this immediate aftermath, mayors and their police chiefs across the country spoke against Floyd's death and support merging protest movement. In L.A., where I live, Police Chief Michael Moore, no relation, told the uh, Washington Post, the lack of compassion, use of excessive force, or going through the scope of the law doesn't just tarnish our badge. It tears at the very fabric of race relations in this country. L.A. Mayor Eric Arcetti, whose father served as the L.A. District Attorney for two terms, echoed Moore's words. And again, it's all just talk. But since then, the city of L.A. imposed a curfew and called in the National Guard. Between May 29th and June 2nd, 2,700 people were arrested. See, it's like you can process a few days, but if you do it for a full week, we're calling in the troops. Uh, because then it's getting out of hand, and, and there's agitators about. We'll get into that. Politicians and police chiefs, like a city and more, know how to read the room. When they publicly stated that they supported the protests and opposed police brutality, they set the PR stage to appear as the good guys, liberal, supportive, authorities in power, who will allow for protests to take place as long as they stay peaceful. And this is how they set up for the next step. Push the myth of the peaceful protest. What does that mean? The problem with the idea of a peaceful protest is who gets to decide what is seen as peaceful versus what is violent. And this is this is like a, a conversation I had that I think it was in the, um, it was in the transit group where someone boasted about how uh, in South Africa, there's a picture of South African zoning, 
or, or urbanism and how apartheid affected the zoning which affects the urban design today. And the guy was like, how could you compare zoning to apartheid? And he didn't seem to get that the, the premise is that this current zoning is a result of apartheid because the zoning is law and who made the laws? These are questions that seem to go without any thought in, in liberal heads or centrist heads. By creating the dichotomy between peaceful protest and non-peaceful, i.g. noxious, we are giving the police justification to inflict violence. If property destruction happens and the media and state powers decide that this is an act of violence, then police use of force is justified. Would be tear gas or sound cannons. Isn't that what led us to George Floyd being killed in the first place? The cops who arrested him thought they were justified in their use of force because they believed he did something that violated the social order. When Donald Trump tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, people were outraged that the president of the U.S. would threaten violence against protesters. But this is what we're seeing. Police have shot protesters and looters with metal bullets in case of rubber. They can't say you're against police violence and killing, but then agree that protesters deserve to be shot, tear-gassed, or beaten by police for attending demonstrations, breaking curfew, or even for committing illegal acts. As long as the police exist... There is no such thing as a peaceful protest. Those who continue to push that narrative are only aiding the powers that be. In reality, it takes a lot of violence to enforce peace. Hmm. Yeah. I like this. This is much more radical than I actually remember the first time I read it, which was back in the summer. Curbing public opinion. The media played a crucial role. You know, actually, we'll we'll hit hit this later. So what I'm going to jump over to Black Agenda Report by a piece written by Ujama Baraka, who was Green Party vice presidential candidate back in 2016. And the question he asks is, will this be the radicalization of Black Lives Matter? This was published December uh, the 2nd of this month. So much more recent. And, and it's also a very particular news story, which so, so there, that's the general picture now for something a little more specific about BLM as a organization, right? Now, as a movement that's a brand that can be put in shop windows. Ten Black Lives Matter chapters are demanding that those who have amassed millions of dollars in the movement's name submit to both a financial and political accounting. Hmm. Quote, It is clear that the chapters raising questions about BLM from the front lines are doing so not out of a desire to destroy, but to strengthen the movement by generating this discussion. So again, when you want to have a discussion and and, and a hold leaders accountable, maybe you're the agitator. Maybe you're just Mm. sowing division, right? But agitators can get in the leadership positions, and they don't have to divide the movement. They can just do nothing or or siphon the movement towards uh, this, we need to stay peaceful, we need to stop seeing the government as our opponent. An opponent doesn't have to be destroyed, but certainly when you're playing chess or a game, you, you want to beat them. You know, you want to win. On Monday, a group of local Black Lives Matter chapters issued a statement publicly calling for more transparency and accountability from the Black Lives Matter global network, the umbrella structure for Black Lives Matter structures. Did we even know this existed? I was nebulous about it, actually. Hmm. In what appears to be an ongoing internal discussion, the chapters claimed that BLMGN not only did not collaborate on 
political visioning and collective analysis with the chapters, so thus all top-down, but not shockingly with the millions reported in the media that was raised from foundations and corporations, most chapters have received little to no financial support since its launch in 2013. That was when BLM was coined, after Eric Gardner. The lack of accountability and questions regarding the use of funds were almost inevitable because it was designed that way. Counterinsurgency efforts in the U.S. and elsewhere discovered that these methods are effective and adopted them as a part of the playbook for corrupting and redirecting potential oppositional groups. This is from the viewpoint of the state. This does not mean that everyone participating in this effort were opportunists. Quite the contrary. There were thousands of black activists across the country who sincerely supported and participated in what was to become the Black Lives Matter movement. These activists, for the most part, had no idea what questions or that questions emerged from the very beginning of this movement. Movements in quotes which only intensified in relationship to the George Floyd demonstrations, especially when it appeared the state had successfully placed BLM at the head of something it had not originated. Most of the activists who hit the streets, so then becomes kind of a teen vogue saying BLM will not be co-opted. But here, when, when you're actually on the ground doing the activism, and the activists and, and the, the insurgency, the uh, sorry, not insurgency, but the, the protests in Minneapolis, right? They weren't led or called by a group. They were spontaneous. They were grassroots. And then it becomes like the orgs then co-op the public energy. And then they direct it into be peaceful. And by peaceful, we mean the state's definition of peaceful, the white man's version of peaceful. Mm. Or if you're a liberal listening, the right-winger's version of peaceful. Because they're one and the same to me. I hope that this effort will result in a serious discussion around the politics of BLM more so than the money issue, even though both are intertwined by the source of the money and the reasons why resources were generated to support this effort. Most of the activists who hit the streets just wanted to do the work and didn't know that questions about whether this movement was more valuable as an instrument of the ideological re-legitimization of the system, you know, making the system legitimate through peaceful, you know, by saying we're going to be peaceful, the system is legitimate, we're going to work with it. Then it was an instrument for advancing the oppositional, anti-capitalist, radical black movement. You know, the cultural Marxists that the right-wingers say BLM is. Meanwhile, BLM is actually not that. So, I mean, there are these two sides that are at odds. Or at least there needs to be some kind of synthesis of the two. Something needs to give. Especially as it seemed to align itself, right, BLM, with the right-wing neoliberal Democrats from Obama, Clinton, Warren, and now Biden. So with the field being flooded with cash from the enemy to keep the focus on easily, and the enemy referring to capitalism, keep the focus on easily incorporated themes of racial justice and criminal justice reform, issues of both financial and political accountability were always beneath the surface. Now those issues have found the light of day and accountability is being called for. The situation that faces African workers and the colonized people of this settler colony are dire. There are no capitalist solution to the crisis of capital at the stage of its development. No Keynesianism, no New Deals, no appeals to the U.S. exceptionalism or making America great will reverse its rot. The material contradictions of the capitalist order have accelerated and social economic forces toward either a unique period of a new national expression of U.S. fascism or of a revolutionary one in which a socialist revolution is presented by a left force as a viable option, hmm. which is what we do. Well, you know, it's a socialism or barbarism. 
This dual trajectory is understood by the rulers and is the basis for why they have consciously moved to preempt the radicalization of the present movement by propping up what has now become a diversionary movement meant to depoliticize, even in the midst of a dramatic mobilization across the country in reaction to the lynching of George Floyd. Yes, he calls it a lynching. Throughout the first few months of the COVID pandemic in April and into May, stories started to surface that revealed how environmental racism, neoliberal privatization, that devastated the public health system, poverty, black and brown workers concentrated in the lowest rungs of the employment ladder, the essential workers, had created the conditions that made the virus a plague for us. Us referring to black people. But those stories just about disappeared for several months, beginning at the end of May. And what happened? George Floyd. The streets were filled with righteous indignation demanding justice for Floyd. And correctly, linking the other cases of police violence, such as the execution of Breonna Taylor, period. Yet, while the marches demand that we say the names of Floyd and Taylor and remember Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland, out of sight, in running, in run-down nursing homes, overcrowded hospitals, and alone in apartments, our folks were dying in silence. The movement would not claim them, would not say their names, or it seemed, fight for them. And even as the lines for food extended for miles, the unemployment checks stopped coming, and people were driven into the streets by landlords released by more memorandums against evictions, somehow these crimes of capital did not fit the dis- definition of an assault on our people. It was as if this was neither a racial justice issue nor a crime of racialized capitalism. It is clear to me now that the chapters raising questions about BLM from the front lines are doing so not out of a desire to destroy, but to strengthen the movement by generating this discussion. Will it be a tough conversation? Yes because partially obscured by the liberal appropriation of intersectionality, liberal identity politics, is the issue of class that the largely petit bourgeois class-based leadership, middle class, leadership of this movement will not even acknowledge, let alone struggle with. But that may soon change. John Buraka is the national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and was the 2016 candidate for vice president on the Green Party ticket. Baraka serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership, oh, sorry, United National Anti-War Coalition, UNAC. He is an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report. And he also contributes to Counterpunch, as uh, certain friends are. So what do you think of that? Do you want me to read? I guess, yeah, you know, okay, I'll save that for later. Which Minneapolis, the, uh, or which New York Times Minneapolis? Let's go, start with, and I'll, t- I'll cut you... You know, I'll gently cut you off. <laughs> New York. So we're going to the New York Times, and we're going to cover the political situation in Minneapolis as far as, like, defund the police as a demand and its results in practice. So let's start with uh, the first one, how, to, how a pledge to dismantle the police collapsed. Cool. Yeah, I can do that. When a majority of city council members promised to, quote-unquote, end policing as we know it, after George Floyd's killing, they became a case study in how idealistic calls for structural change can falter. Oof, bit of a liberal take, but let's oh, oh, keep going. Okay, disclaimer, this is the New York Times, Fair. <laughs> and they're going to frame things, quote-unquote, objectively. Ah, okay. New and York Times, quote unquote. We take we take things at face value, and 
when things occur, it's just how things are, right? Mm. There's Look, if you make any suggestion of how things could or should be, you're no longer being objective. So uh, we're moving from there. That's why we're going to, we can jump, you can jump around at your leisure to whatever paragraphs you might think are relevant. But um, we're just going to cover the first third because the second article will be kind of the update, which will summarize other parts of this article, like, right. you know, the later parts. So Minneapolis, or this was published in September. All right. Over three months ago, a majority of the Minneapolis City Council pledged to defund the city's police department, making a powerful statement that reverberated across the country. It shook up Capitol Hill and the presidential race, shocked residents, delighted activists, and changed the trajectory of efforts to overhaul the police during a crucial window of turmoil and political opportunity. Now, some council members would like a do-over. No do-overs. Andrew Johnson, one of the nine members who supported the pledge in June, said in an interview that he meant the words in spirit, not by the letter. Another councillor, Philippine Cunningham, or Philippe, it would just be Philip or Philippe, yeah. Philippe Cunningham said the language in the pledge was up for interpretation, and that even amongst council members, soon after the promise was made, quote, it was very clear that most of us had interpreted the language differently, unquote. Lisa Bender, the council president, paused for 16 seconds when asked, asked if the council statement had led to uncertainty at the pivotal moment for the city. Yada, yada, yada. I think our pledge created confusion in the community and in our wards, she said. The regrets formalize a retreat that has quietly played out in Minneapolis in the months since George Floyd was killed by the police and the ensuing national uproar over the treatment of black Americans by law enforcement and the country at large. After a summer that challenged society's commitment to racial equality and raised the the prospect of sweeping political change, a cool autumn reality is setting in. Now a cool winter Gotta love those seasonal metaphors, you know? I mean, uh, it's like only during the summer can there be riots because that's when things are hot and people's tempers flare up. Ah. Because if people can't be mad at snowbanks or lack of shoveling or something like that. You know, uh, with you saying that, that reminds me of, um, uh, just to go a little bit off track, that reminds me of a meme I saw. You know the um, the picture of Peter Griffin with the cop going up to him with, like, the color swatch to say, like, he's white oh, enough that oh, it's yeah. okay, you can let him through? Yeah. And I saw, and on the white side, it had tensions flare, and on the black side, it had riots. Yeah. And it parallels a tweet that's like, tensions flare as pro-Trump supporters mm-hmm. do such and such in yeah. the streets. And it's, oh, when, You know people were stabbed at that action, you know? When... Like, there, there was there was actual, like, right. someone wasn't killed, but, like, even if someone was, they would frame it as exactly. a terrible accident when occurred. White when white right-wingers mob, are when they mob violent, somebody, yeah, it's when, tensions rise. Yes, when they, However, yeah. when they're black people fighting for their freedom, it's rioting and looters and oh it's all terrible but or like yeah. fighting for the freedom as in doing the same thing right exactly it's just the double standard at least but of course it's more insidious and that's kind of what we've been you know national polls show decreasing support for black lives matter or since a sea change of goodwill in june yes 
In Minneapolis, the most far-reaching policy efforts meant to address police violence have all but collapsed. In interviews this month, about two dozen elected officials, protesters, and community leaders described how the city council members pledged to end policing as we know it, a mantra to meet the city's pain, became a case study in how quickly political winds can shift and what happens when idealistic efforts at structural change meet the legislative process and public opposition. The pledge is now no closer to becoming policy, with fewer vocal champions than ever. It has been rejected by the city's mayor, a plurality of residents. I, I want to point out the vocal champions referring to legitimate political actors that we will talk to. Right. Plurality of residents in recent public opinion polls in an increasing number of community groups. Taking its place have been the types of incremental reforms that the city's progressive politicians have denounced. In the meantime, quote-unquote, defunding the police has become a talking point for state and national Republicans looking to paint liberals as anti-law enforcement. God, I wish liberals were in favor of defunding the police. It's been a thorn in the side of Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential nominee, even though he rejects the idea. Ugh. I just want to make a side note sure. of how, um, so I was in the car listening to, because um, I put it on, I think it was NPR station, uh, listening to his, uh, I guess it was his actual victory speech mm. uh, with the uh, final, the vote of the real election, the electoral college. Right. Um, they, they, when, when's the electoral college vote held? Was it already held? It was held last, uh, Wednesday or something. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Hillary was in town. Uh, you know that? Anyway. Uh, yeah, all these people that have no business actually be, being the electors, but they are. Uh, oh, yeah, anyway, in Albany. The real election. The real election. Yep. Uh, anyway. Um, but anyway, I was listening to his, uh, speech and, um, I, I, he sounded, you know, normal first 10 minutes and after that, he just ran out of steam. He was. He had to clear his throat every sentence. Listen here, Jack. It, it was no. It was, it was a recorded. It wasn't not recorded. I mean, a very scripted. You know, blah, mindless drone speech like normal. It's same thing Obama did, and just of course it's boring, boring, boring. But it's what the liberals love. It's like, oh, I don't have to pay attention. I can be bored by politics now. I can go back to brunch. Anyway, all that aside, all those writings aside, I just, I just want to point out that Biden was like, he couldn't make it through 15 minutes. Right. He was, had to clear his throat. He was like, I, you know, not, not a full cough, but just like, um, his voice was, um, phlegming up. He was phlegm, he was getting some phlegm build up there. Yeah. Let's see. Maybe I'll cut you. Let's see. Um, Are you going to cut me off now for the other article? Um, or? Yeah, because it's basically just a summarize. Right. The, the, the the other article. Well, you can continue with the the next one, but the it just summarizes a lot of different things, and it does it bounces around. It's it's, a, it's not a short one, and you know there's a disjointed response and just the tensions, or rather the contradictions between activists on the ground calling for the more radical change, like us, and then the establishment, and then all the people in the middle who don't know how to feel about it. So can you read the next one? Because that was my last free article of the New York Times for the month. I'm sorry. Damn it. Yeah. They're like, sign up to read this article. And I'm like, no. I have a um, call call for donations. Uh, our, we have a Patreon page. <laughs> if we get five patrons, 
we'll likely have enough to, to subscribe to the New York to Times. Subscribe to well, a few places, but even if it isn't like there's a paywall, I would like to support the radical uh, publications. Oh, that of course, they have donation buttons. I like to throw ten dollars their way, but I yeah. kind of need to save. I'm, yeah, I'm really obsessed. I'm a Judar. I like saving money. <laughs> you know, Moses saves. Jesus saves, but Moses invests. Um, well, I'm not investing actually, <laughs> but I want to invest in the community uh, loan fund, maybe. But at the very least, I'm joining the co-op, and that's just a hundred. But whatever. The, but again, I'm I'm underemployed right now. I yeah. really don't want to. I can't, I can't be in the giving spirit, unfortunately. I have lots of time, though, and that's why I did Shovel Brigade and, and all that stuff. So, okay. Minneapolis City Council votes to remove $8 million from police budget. So it did not seem like they were going to vote against, uh, you know, defund. they're actually going to cut police budget at all. Uh, the last article was kind of listing all of the, as the New York Times, not just the New York Times, but as status quo reporting does, it really sets out the, not its purpose, but it does something unconsciously where it just lists out all the reasons why something won't happen. And rarely all the reasons why, how it could, because that would be um, speculative, right? But listing all of the actual impediments that exist currently. So and that's the thing about the New York Times or any other kind of legacy media like New Yorker too, is that when you read it, I got at least the impression that our system sucks and we should replace it. Right. And apparently if you're well off enough, that's not what you think when you read this stuff, you think, Oh, the system works. It kept the radical thing that would hurt me from happening. And that's class war. So, the move comes as the city grapples with efforts to overhaul the p- department after the police killing of George Floyd. So moving forward, including our own city, it's having hearings and public input on how are we going to reform our policing. It's all very milquetoast to me. It's not radical. It's all very transitionatory, but transition to what? It's actually not transitioning at all. It's just softening. It's putting velvet gloves on the fist. Uh, but anyway. This is written by the team Jenny Gross and John Elgond. And this was um, last week. Months after their pledge to dismantle the police department fell apart, members of the Minneapolis City Council voted early Thursday. Oh, and something else the New York Times has done here that I cannot forgive them for is that there are two Greens on the Minneapolis City Council. They are never mentioned. Really? Yes, and they play a part, but not as far as the establishment is concerned. We don't exist. We never elect anybody. We don't focus on local elections. Only the presidential race do they ever actually maybe mention us. And that's where people get the idea that we only run a presidential candidate quixotically, and we don't actually run local campaigns. Go figure. But they voted Thursday to divert nearly $8 million from the proposed policing budget to other city services, a move heralded by some as an important step toward transforming public safety in a city where law enforcement has been accused of racism, or long been accused. The shift in funds, about 4.5% of the proposed $179 million police dollar police budget, was not nearly the sweeping change that activists and some lawmakers had demanded in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd in May. Still, Jeremiah Ellison, a city councilman who had favored more aggressive efforts to defund the police, called it an incredible investment. 
I think what we're able to do with the eight million is going to do a lot of, is going to do a lot for public safety in our city. And I think about what you can spend on eight million dollars. You know, you can build a block of, yeah, a block of housing, or you could you build, can do a lot, build a community center. But you know, that's like a one-time investment. There's operations, of course. The money will go toward bolstering the city's office of violence prevention starting a team of mental health professionals who can respond to crises without the aid of the police and allowing city workers outside the police department to process minor complaints, such as parking violations and property damage. The decision to divert the funds capped several days of charged emotional debate over the size of the police force and the role of the department and came amid a spike in violent crime this year. They're going to mention that more than once, by the way. In this budget proposal, Mayor Jacob Fry suggested slashing last year's police budget to $193 million by more than 7%. Council members went th- further, in large part by cutting money earmarked for overtime and overstaffing costs. Trimming of those items raised alarm bells among the police chief and some lawmakers as the department had lost 166 officers this year, some permanently, others because they are on disability, and still others saying that they have post-traumatic stress from the massive protests that swept the city over the summer. <laughs> okay, that's my uh, mean trot take for the day. I believe we're at the bre- that breaking point, said Linear Pasolano, chair of the council's budget committee. I'm very concerned that we are reducing our city's ability to respond to 911 calls and do investigations well. I'm extremely concerned because I don't think that we can keep asking our current officers to work at the rate that they are working. Now, of course, this raises kind of a chicken of the egg question, right? They're overburdened because that office of, you know, violence prevention isn't there to do a lot of the work that they're doing, like, you know, addressing parking complaints or right. being doing mental health work. And instead, it's like we guys got to keep hold the course, you know, have police do all this stuff. And uh, people with guns or, you know, with less training. Um, and also the whole, um, I want to remind uh, listeners, uh, I think I covered it in another, the last, like, kind of police and defund the police show that, like, you know, 10% of their work is actually solving crime and addressing violence. In addition to the diversion of $8 million, the council put $11.5 million in a reserve fund intended for hiring and overtime. The department will have to appeal to the council and ask permission to gain access to those funds. So no overtime unless you can prove that you need it. The council had originally planned to reduce the number of officers to 750 from 888, starting in 2022, despite a surge in gun violence, despite a surge in gun violence in Minneapolis this year. Mr. Frey had vetoed, threatened to veto the budget if the council approved such a measure, which narrowly failed. Now, now that, that whole like little outburst of myself, a surge in gun violence, Brings to mind a point I wanted to make about how I have very little patience, in fact, no patience, with policies and our status quo, which does not has not been tested. So many claims about policy and the policies that we have and the way our system works are made without testing, without scientific justification. Example, on gun violence or murder rates, right? Murder rates went up before the cuts have been made. And the case is, we can't cut cops, there is a surge in violence. Well, the surge in violence occurred while we had a police force, now an uprising too. But 
No, that this is a slow burn problem. Where, you know, a rise in poverty and economic insecurity is a correla is was correlated with violent crime or any crime. So it's seen as a we need more officers problem or a number of officers problem when it's a economic and poverty problem. And it's just that city governments just can't address these things because we have an economic system, we live in a society, and they're really quite powerless as far as solving it quickly or within a year or even getting us on track to solve it, even though that there are action items that could be done, like increasing the amount of co-ops or some city-managed known services instead of just property security. But, like, you know, I, I, as an activist, I just have no patience for claims. So it's like you haven't tested. Like, the, like um, uh, here's an easier one. The, the death penalty. Right. The claim that death penalty is a deterrent to murders. Is it, though? But we've never tested that. Right. Now, when we do test it by removing the death penalty, look at that. The murder rate didn't go up. In fact, it might even go down because we're actually taking away all the state murders. Mm. And that's and that's what the status quo truly, like, it can't test any of its actual premises. Because if it did, they'd be proved to be false most of the time. Yeah. Sometimes they're proved to be right. And then the left, or, you know, like a rabble-rouser like me, has to step back and reevaluate and go like, oh, okay, okay. Maybe I'm going too far, or I'm, I'm whatever. I mean, right. I'm the one being nuts now, but... For the most part, when it comes to law and order and all this stuff, no. It's poverty. And we need to test whether or not more officers lower crime. Now, I think the technocrats believe this was tested in the 90s with New York. But that's where, when you test scientifically, you need to remove other variables. You need to have some kind of control. And in New York City, you had rising... The economy was rebounding in the 90s, along with, so that it's like, was the drop in crime over-policing and stop and frisk, or was it that the city was no longer financially uh, in the crap house? Wall Street and the finance sector was investing money again because of Disney and gentrification, and why people wanted to move back, or, but again, like, they want to move back because it was made safe by over-policing, so then it becomes a, you know, what? came first and and that's something a deep analysis needs to be done c benton the president of the twin cities chapter of the urban league called the cuts to the police department okay so now we're getting into the the groups that were kind of against the stuff the urban league which is liberal democratic party orbit arm called the cuts to the police department misguided and misinformed he said council members made it an either or proposition between funding the police and other services when he believed Everything was needed. So then it just becomes a question of, we need to raise taxes. We need to increase uh, city revenues, you know? But that stays out of the conversation, too. And this is where, um, uh, on the Green Party level, with Howie Hawkins and the national platform, he made it clear that when it came to defunding the police, it can't be done by taking away from the police budgets because the police budgets actually aren't enough to fund the public housing and the social programs and uh, poverty alleviation, right? Right. This will take federal-level trillion-dollar spending, right? But we're not going to get it from the federal level. And that's why And that's why it's kind of left on cities like, let's at least move some millions around. Right. We shouldn't have to, 
but we have to. The allocation of the Office of Violence Prevention, though, grew to 6.7 million from 1.5 million, much larger. Established in 2018, very recently, its aim is to prevent crime, deploying strategies such as having community members mediate disputes and having social workers meet with victims of violence at hospitals, which is like just basic level. This year, the city has logged 5,000 violent crimes, up 25% from last year. And again, it just goes in the stats. It's the wrong optics to the communities that are most impacted detrimentally by violence in the absence of policing and poor policing, he said. So it just covers all the voices who are against this cut. Um, it's so minor, 4%, you know. And, and it references that there were, like, um, black neighborhoods were polled, and they were against defunding the police. Hmm. I think our pledge created confusion in the community and in our awards, Lisa Bender, the council president, said in September, when asked if the council's statement had led to uncertainty at the pivotal moment. I think that was a line that you already read. Instead of larger policing changes, Minneapolis agreed to ban chokeholds and passed several reforms, including a revamped use-of-force policy. Residents in Minneapolis have mixed opinions about the council's efforts to change how the police force runs. On the city's north side, which has a majority black population, residents have complained about mistreatment, but also about rampant crime. The police department's 4th precinct, which covers north Minneapolis, has seen more homicides and violent crimes this year than any other precinct in the city. Our communities are in so much trauma now, Andrea Jenkins, the council vice president, said this week's meeting. We must try all the options to restore a sense of safety, real safety, in our communities. So the general sense and tone from coverage from the New York Times that is kind of like, it's so complicated, you know, it's, they're, there's this, you know, grassroots movement to to do this, but there's so many unintended consequences. Is it really worth doing? That's the implication I always get from these articles, um, along with that it's this, this systemic issues of, like, you can't really change or test anything unless it all unravels or, you know, so that's system change, not climate change and whatever. So with the uh, wrap up the show with um, a, another video, and this is called uh, Minneapolis: The Abolition of Law. Now this is from it's going down the insurrectionary uh, publication, which covers kind of more direct action and eviction blockages and uh, what anarchist uh, communities are doing. Uh, but this is a pretty good, powerful video here. So hmm. let's wrap up. It's about nine minutes. I'm gonna stop it oh, right. Cool. Yeah. Bam, bam. There we go. In the final days of May 2020, the city of Minneapolis erupted in a massive rebellion against the police murder of George Floyd. Within three days, huge crowds had forced the police to surrender the third precinct building, and it was set on fire. All around the city and beyond, stores were being looted, people were fighting the police, and fires were set. Just as we approached the precipice of total insurrection, stability and order were reintroduced to the city when nothing seemed less likely. Why, at the height of what was easily the largest rebellion in over half a century, did much of the city organize to assist the police in crushing it, often in the name of the very anti-racism at its heart? You're here. 
In order to stop the rebellion and thus to uphold the systems of anti-blackness and capitalism, the state introduced a new tactic. In the midst of this massive rebellion, the state offered a legible and understandable enemy to all of those who were searching for stability but could not be mobilized by the explicitly racist rhetoric of black leaders or the right-wing's fear-mongering about Antifa. This fear would instead be ascribed to the face of evil par excellence, the white supremacist. You address, are there white supremacists causing destruction in the city? My, my suspicions and what I've seen on this, yes. Blaming the violence of the uprising on white supremacists allowed the state to undermine the anti-police rage of the rebellion and resume its prior role of protecting citizens against extremism. The state intentionally shifted the target of people's anger from the systemic racism that murdered George Floyd and countless others to relatively marginal actors. The location of white supremacy and anti-blackness is displaced onto the small assortment of extremists to mask their true whereabouts in the heart of the civil society as a whole. While police were forced to retreat, a new alliance between social justice advocates and anti-fascists on the one hand and vigilante law enforcement on the other was forged with new neighborhood watch groups and citizen patrols protecting against the lawlessness of the riots. Some small business owners began defending their property at gunpoint, like the owner of Cadillac Pond, who murdered Calvin Horton Jr. during the uprising. Other groups, like AIM and the Freedom Riders, began doing essentially the same things, yet considered themselves an extension of the uprising. Since the arson and looting began last week, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, about 300 volunteers have joined the American Indian Movement, or AIM, patrol, carrying sticks, bats, and flashlights. We'll, we'll be out here all night, but, you know, don't get a mistake. And the Native, the native community supports the, the, you know, we support George, the George Floyd, you know, and we want everyone to be peaceful. We want everyone to be safe. And, you know, we're... It started with us protecting our community from the looting and the rioting, right, and the burning of our buildings and our property. And with that, and with the response of our black men coming in the community, I think the police have just naturally taken a respectful step back approach to allowing us this time to to protect ourselves. Patrols like these justified their actions along racial lines. However, they consistently helped protect white-owned businesses, corporations, banks. This valorization of property structurally aligns them with the forces of civil order, and therefore of the anti-blackness that this order upholds. As many historians are starting to confirm and to argue is that Property has its particular kind of sanctity in America because for most of its history, the most important property that it coveted was human property that was shackled in chains. I think that we need to weaponize this argument and say that whenever property is protected, it's protected for white supremacy end. If property is truly the pursuit of happiness, you know, in that trifecta of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, at least we can all agree that the existence of that happiness and property is premised upon the negation of black life and the negation of black liberty. So the protection of property is something that we need to attack explicitly.
the state's efforts to insinuate the rebellion was the work of white supremacists would not have been as effective if there weren't certain elements of truth involved. On the very first night, a small group of Boogaloo boys were seen at the clashes around the 3rd Precinct. While not always ideologically coherent, Boogaloo Boys are a far-right network that emphasizes the escalation of conflict with the state to bring about a second civil war. Anti-fascist activists online intending to warn participants of their presence ended up inflating their significance, which had actually been marginal. As the uprising exploded, they are given two options. To participate in an uprising that centers black liberation and thus decenters their own ideology, or to let themselves be sidelined and left behind. While one Boogaloo Boy faces charges for choosing the former, many of his companions chose the latter when deciding to defend stores from looting. When interviewed, they attempt to balance supporting the uprising while protecting the store from the uprising. So bottom line, justice for Floyd, and uh, I hope they stop looting at some point. If there were more of us, we could go stop them from looting, but it's just us four. Yeah, we, might, we definitely don't agree with the looting. Yeah, no, looting, so we do looting agree with the cause of the protest. Yeah, definite protest. This balancing act is the same one navigated by the community patrols that began to form, made easier when the destruction can be blamed on white supremacists. The Boogaloo Boys would actually go on to collaborate with the Minnesota Freedom Riders, despite being the only group visible on the ground associated with the threats of white supremacist agitation. So what you see is the community protecting the community, right? Um, we know that our brother George Floyd um, got murdered by the Minneapolis Police Department, and there's been a lot of unrest. This is the president of the NAACP in um, Minneapolis. Uprising in the community, and there have been professionals in the community who have been burning buildings. Uh, we know that there are a lot of white supremacists out here. The goal for being out here is to protect our businesses and our churches and just make sure that we're okay. That's literally all we're out here to do is to protect and serve. The only way that such a massive project can emerge so quickly and with such popular support is by this narrative of white supremacist agitators. The counterinsurgent initiative even cloaked itself in the language of police abolition, with neighbors suggesting that they were prefiguring what would replace the Minneapolis Police Department when it was abolished. This form of police abolition that has gripped the city's imagination is merely the same regime of law, only upheld by nicer faces. The myth of the white supremacist agitator does not simply tarnish the memory and legacy of the revolt. It also illuminates the very stakes of the movement itself and its call for abolition. Abolition does not simply mean the defunding of any specific department, as many activists today advocate for. Nor does abolition simply mean doing away with the brutality that police use to enforce the law, as offered by restorative justice. Instead, revolutionary abolition must mean the abolition of law itself, along with the capitalist property relations that the law upholds. Revolution consists of so much more than merely burning and fighting, but it does involve these actions. These actions were at the very heart of the uprising this summer. To condemn them is to condemn the uprising. This is what happens when you murder niggas. This is what happens when niggas want their city back. This is it. Right? Like, this is the start of revolutions right here. This is government property. They need to burn all of it. All of it needs to be burned. The system ain't right. It ain't working. We need a new one. And this is how you get a new one. This is how niggas revolt. This is angry. And we've been angry for a real long time. 
So, <laughs> this is it. Let niggas burn the rest of the city down until justice comes and it ain't gonna come easy. And we didn't been, we didn't bled enough for this city. We didn't bled enough for this country. Let's go. Burn. I'm gonna stop it there because the next uh, uh, person quoted uh, starts swearing. So that was a massive reformulation, a uh, reframing of the events of May. Uh, and of course, mo- for the most radical lens possible. Okay. Uh, what did you think of that? I thought it was pretty interesting. I hadn't really heard a lot of that before. That's exactly why I'm playing it last. So it's probably in people's minds. It's the last thing. Uh, so the, yeah, that's, it's going down. It's called the abolition of law. I was, you know, I already had this mindset, um, for the last few years as far as like what, what it really take to de, you know, beat racism in America? What does it take to actually kind of get justice? It really does take a complete system change, abolition of, of law, order, you know, these definitions of them, white supremacist definitions of them. Just because you have some black middle class who work for the state or, or have one, gotten some, you have some black billionaires, millionaires, it does not mean that the system has actually changed. Um, it gives the impression to laymen that, you know, everyone has a fair chance, but these are outliers. You know, exceptions prove the rule. And, you know, meritocracy, the, the myth, the myth of meritocracy, we can go through all of that. And there's all these ideas that, that meld together into, to making what you just heard probably more coherent than it may sound like at face value. But that's kind of why the rest of the last, the rest of the show today was about making all of those little points and arguments leading up to that video. We can extend this conversation in the future episodes for sure. Um, so I'll leave you with that. My profound thanks for listening, which is the skills important is talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback. Please email the show. We have a Patreon page. Uh, support this community-run radio station. We are slowly starting to roll out our own citizen journalism. And we are actually working on an, a quite important piece uh, project right now. I will keep it on the DL for now. But I really like um, with bated breath onto the results of, of what we're doing. This episode was also podcasted, 3lefts.news, and any podcast app. Uh, the show can be found, and, uh, and so on.